Okay, we're going to be in Mark 4 this morning. Talking about the parable of the sower. I said Wednesday night in our study that we have a lot of preconceived notions that we come to Scripture with, and uh, I think hopefully we'll be open to changing some of those this morning as we go through this. When I was young, I attended Sunday school every Sunday morning. Uh, Sunday evenings, we had a thing at the time called Training Union. They don't really have that anymore. Uh, but we had that before our evening worship time. So we'd worship on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. We had various activities. And then on Wednesday evenings, we had what was called Royal Ambassadors for the Boys. Uh, and then girls had Girls in Actions. Uh, or girls in action. So RAs and GAs uh, was what we had. And, and we studied missions and we studied, you know, the Bible kind of in, in conjunction. And then as we got older, we all sort of went to a youth Bible study time together. The youth were kind of separate and had their own thing. Uh, and then the summer we had, you know, vacation Bible school. And then as we got older, we graduated into Bible drill and those sorts of things. Uh, I even went to Bible drill competitions and things like that, where you have to step forward and have a verse and all that. That's why I'm really quick at finding things. <laughs> uh, but in all these things, we were taught about our faith by learning about the Bible and, and its stories, and then other stories of people who became missionaries and carried those stories to everyone in the world. I look back on those times with fondness, and also gratefulness, because they developed in me a love and a hunger for the things of God, as, as well as a desire to learn and, and to memorize scripture so that I could know it and understand it better. The thing is, not everything from back then was positive, though. Along the way, I was repeatedly taught certain things that had a particular uh, view of what it all meant reinforced sort of at every turn. And what I didn't realize then that I'm thankful to understand now is that I was being given a worldview. And it wasn't the only one around. It wasn't the only way to understand God or Jesus or even the Bible. And I still hold on to some of the things that I was taught then but there are some things that I have gone back and looked at again, and I just don't accept them anymore because I don't see them as being consistent with the God who is shown in Jesus in the Gospels. And this is important because Jesus is the lens through which we can best see and understand God. He is God in flesh, God as one of us. And that has become my approach to everything about God and the Bible. So, for example, as a child and, and then all the way up through my teenage years, I was taught that God was pretty much always angry. <laughs> and specifically mad at me for everything I ever did wrong. That's kind of how it worked. Which meant that I lived with a lot of deep-seated shame. Now, I don't know if these people teaching me were trying to fill me with shame. I don't know that that was their goal. I'm not trying to cast that on them. Maybe they were, I don't know, but maybe it was just sort of a side effect of the particular way that we believed. 
And who knows, maybe they dealt with massive shame as well. For me, that shame has been crippling at times, hanging over me like a dark shadow, always threatening to wreck my day. But here's the thing. Scripture is super clear that we are forgiven in Jesus Christ, and that should be an end to all our shame. Once and for all, we don't have to carry shame around with us because Jesus made things right on the cross. Scripture also shows us through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus that God is not angry and mad at us all the time. On the contrary, God sent Jesus to show us what love looks like and to teach us about forgiveness and mercy and grace because that's who he is. All that to say, I grew up thinking and deeply believing a certain set of ideas, and they guided and directed all my preconceptions about who God is, who Jesus is, and what the Bible is all about, until I actually met Jesus. And when I began to read the Bible again with fresh eyes, I began to see that several of my preconceptions needed adjusting. They needed to be altered because they had some incorrect and even harmful aspects. Now this morning, we're going to take some time and try to adjust our preconceptions about this particular passage of Scripture. And hopefully when we're done, we will understand it better and the Holy Spirit will be able to use it to make us more like Jesus. So follow along with me as we read. We're going to begin in Mark 4, verse 1. And read through verse 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones who are sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so let's set up the scene here. Because context always matters and it opens our eyes to what is going on in the story. In this case, we have a crowd and the location that are the important factors that Mark included. So why are they significant enough for Mark to mention them here? And how did it set up the story that he's telling? When Mark stated that Jesus began to teach beside the sea, he was referring to Capernaum. That's where they were at the time. That's right on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, almost right in the middle of the north shore. And Capernaum was basically a small town nestled in a wide green plain irrigated by several rivers. And other than the Roman garrison that happened to be there, it was home to just everyday working class Jews. Some were fishermen like Peter and his brother. Uh, others were farmers who worked the fertile area around the little town, producing olive oil and grain specifically. That was the two things that were mainly in that area. Still to this day, actually, they still grow it there. Well, this matters for two reasons. First, the crowd he was speaking to that day would have been almost, if not entirely, Jewish. And the majority of them probably would have been farmers. As was his custom, Jesus used language and terms that would have been familiar to them, hence the parable about sowing seeds. Now, the other reason is that these working class Jews were the very ones suffering under Roman oppression, the very ones who would have been longing for God to send the Messiah in order to set things right so that they could be free. As we already know, this led to many expectations for what Messiah would be like when he came and the kinds of things that he would do. And there was also a sense that once Messiah showed up, it wouldn't take long. Everything would sort of unfold quickly. But Jesus wasn't planning on overthrowing Rome or doing it quickly. His plan was for establishing the kingdom, and it was much bigger than all of that, and it was going to take a lot longer than anyone expected, which may have been at least part of why he taught in parables. But there was more important reason, and it's pretty easy to miss if we aren't paying attention. After telling the parable itself, Jesus finished by saying, he who has ears, let him hear which was more than just a fun way of saying, okay, I'm done talking now. Jesus was drawing from the Torah and the prophets in order to distinguish between two types of people. We like to look at this and think it was four, but it was really just two. Those who would pay attention and heed what was being said and those who would not. That's, that's the difference, really. Now, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 2 through 4, we read that Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, 
to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Eyes to see and ears to hear. In context, Moses was condemning the children of Israel for not being faithful to the Lord and all the things that they'd come through, for chasing after other gods, even though it was Yahweh who freed them and brought them out of Egypt. It's like in the book of Judges that we studied this past fall, where we saw the Lord consistently saying, if this is how you want it to be, then I will let you have your way and everything that comes with it as a result. And the children of Israel had continued to do uh, the same things well beyond the time of the judges, from the first kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, to all the kings that came after. Throughout this entire time, when Israel was a nation, the cycle repeated itself over and over. And during that time, we see this phrase show up among the prophets. Like in Jeremiah 5.21, where we read, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears but hear not. Or then again in Ezekiel 12, 1-2, where we find, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Jesus was doing the same sort of thing here, telling a parable about the people of Israel and then using this same phrasing as a way of revealing that this message should be heeded by anyone who cared about God or the things of God. Unfortunately, even after their exile and return, even after God freed them again as he had during the Exodus and all through the other periods, the Israelites were still hard of hearing. Which brings up a few questions for us today. Are we listening to what God is saying? Are we paying attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing? Or are we content to lean on our preconceived notions about what it means to follow Jesus. We talk about being saved, but how many of us talk about how God is establishing the kingdom in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit? How many of us are willing to be Jesus' disciples and not just his fans? How many of us have ears to hear? We tend to read a parable like this and analyze it in terms of each part. That's not really how parables work. We've talked about this before. They typically follow a certain sort of pattern and then reveal their true meaning at the very end, sort of like a movie with a plot twist. In this parable, I was taught that it's about the four kinds of people who hear the gospel, kind of like a spectrum from one end to the other, of how willing people are to listen and believe in Jesus. But given the context and the audience and the parable itself, that's not exactly what Jesus was doing here. 
We know that Jesus was speaking to Jews about the kingdom, which means that all four of the types of ground are Israel. The path, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, and the good soil, they're all Israel. As I was studying this week and I was reading this in a commentary and thinking, my mind was, was just like sort of like, wait, what? How is that even possible? But as I read it again and again, it all started to make sense. As you look at all the factors playing into what's going on here, the way Mark tells the story, everything falls into place along these lines. Not only the context, the audience, the, the location are important, but the language Jesus used, which might seem casual, like he was looking around and just sort of gathering ideas from what he saw, right? But it was prophetic language that he's using. It's purposeful. The terms he used, they weren't all inclusive, really. They were very specific to Israel. Let's take a look at them. In this parable, we see a farmer sowing seeds. And in the location that we're speaking of, the farmers were, were working with olive vineyards and then grain, right? That was the two main things. And then we have birds showing up to devour the seeds in one situation, and then rocky ground where nothing really took root, thorny ground where the thorns choked out the seeds, and then finally there's the good soil. Okay, so with those things in mind, and, and be thinking about those things, I want to read from Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. The prophet says, let me sing for my beloved, my, song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Oh, now... Inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What, was, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it when I looked for it to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasing planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Anytime we hear Jesus using certain words and ideas, and then we go back and find those same words and ideas in the prophets concerning Israel, there is a direct correlation there. He's doing it on purpose. So as we see in the passage from Isaiah, all those different types of ground are in reference to what God warned would happen to Israel because instead of producing a good crop, they only produced wild grapes. 
This terminology is in the parable as well. When Jesus talked about the good soil producing 30, 60, and 100 fold in return. And we'll get to the meaning of that in just a moment. But again, Jesus had a different sort of timetable than the people might have expected. So instead of explaining everything to them, he only explained it to the disciples in private. So Jesus wasn't interested in having fans. He wasn't trying to build a cheering section, which is look around at what so many churches seem to look like these days. But Jesus was building a kingdom. And that took dedicated followers who were willing to say and do what he said and did. And this was the ultimate goal of the parable, to see who wanted more. Who would walk away after and think, well, that was just such a nice service this morning. And who would come up to Jesus afterward and say, I have to know more. You got to tell me more. I want to follow you and be the good soil so that you will plant the word in me and I will reproduce the kingdom. And his commentary on Mark, N.T. Wright, who's a pretty well-known theologian, puts it like this. A sower sowing seed is not just a familiar picture from everyday farming life. It's a picture of God sowing Israel again in her own land after the long years of exile, of God restoring the fortunes of his people, making the family farm fruitful again after the thorns and thistles have had it their own way for too long. There is even a hint of the restoration of the Garden of Eden. The problem, and this seems to be the main reason Jesus taught in parables, is that Jesus vision of how God was sowing his word was, as we would say today, politically incorrect. People were expecting a great moment of renewal. They believed that Israel would be rescued lock, stock, and barrel. God's kingdom would explode onto the world stage in a blaze of glory. No, declares Jesus. It's more like a farmer sowing seed much of which apparently goes to waste because the soil isn't fit for it and can't sustain it. Jesus is giving a coded warning that belonging to the kingdom isn't automatic. The kingdom is coming all right, but not in the way they have imagined. See, this follows the same pattern Jesus had been setting from the very beginning. The pattern of proclaiming and establishing the kingdom of God by freeing people from their slavery to sin and death and empowering them to reproduce the kingdom. And Jesus would follow that pattern all the way to the cross and the empty tomb. Because Jesus being the new and better Moses, leading a new and better Exodus as we spoke of last week, that ultimately ends up with those who follow him being the new and better Israel. And how can we be a part of the new and better Israel if we think Jesus saved us to sit around? This kind of language is extremely dangerous to all our preconceived notions about God and the church and who we are called to be as followers of Jesus. It kicks over any way of thinking that allows us 
to be complacent and refuses to let us justify any actions that lead us to laziness or apathy. Because our calling is to let the Holy Spirit bring about the dramatic renewal of the world in and through us. And that brings us to those numbers. So what is the significance of the numbers 30, 60, and 100 in terms of the fruit produced by the good soil people? In this case, these multiples were pointing toward a specific thing, a moment that would reveal the kingdom of God taking shape on earth as it is in heaven. When we think about it, when did the word Jesus was planting in the soil of Israel begin to seriously reproduce in these terms? During his three-year ministry, he never had more than about 500 followers, and even that number was in flux as various folks came and went. But after his death and resurrection, when he had ascended his throne at the right hand of the Father as king over all creation, what event took place that expanded the kingdom from those first followers to a second generation of followers? What was it that revealed the kind of reproduction of 30, 60, and 100-fold that Jesus spoke of. It was Pentecost. And that's important for two reasons. First, Pentecost was the Jewish festival of the harvest, the time when the good soil bore fruit. And second, Pentecost was the beginning of the church. Today, whether you are sitting here with us or joining us online, we are the church. Which means this idea of being good soil and producing fruit applies to us. Because we are still supposed to be sowing and harvesting. We've concerned ourselves too much with the types of ground when we should be concerning ourselves with whether or not we are producing fruit. And understand this is not about fruit as in good morals. It's not what this is talking about. Good morals are important for believers, but this is not about that. This is about every single one of us who claims to be a follower of Jesus saying and doing what he said and did and leading others to faith in him as a result. Part of the problem is that many of us look at Pentecost and it makes us nervous. Because when the Holy Spirit takes over, things tend to get a little weird, a little unpredictable. We want things normal and predictable. But if we are followers of Jesus, then we will say and do what he said and did. What his disciples said and did. What those after them said and did, and what true followers have said and done ever since. We will love and forgive as he loved and forgave. We will dedicate our lives to proclaiming the kingdom of God and spend all our effort on loving people with our lives so that they will see just what that looks like. We will be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to move in us 
and then through us in a way that may very well make us uncomfortable. And we will see all these things result in other people coming to know and love and follow Jesus as we do. So those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, as we come before you this morning with these words of the parable and the explanation that Jesus gave, we pray, Father, the Holy Spirit would just pester us with these. Use them to convict us Use them to encourage us. Use them to empower us to be who we are called to be. Because we live in a town full of people who don't know you or your love or forgiveness. They just know a bunch of other things about what the church has looked like and done. And Father, they need to see you. They need to see Jesus. They need to experience the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Father, that you would make that happen through us. Don't give us a moment's rest until we're willing to change and be who we're called to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.